Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Eating Crow with Pete Durand. Hey everyone, welcome to another, I'm going to call thrilling episode of the Eating Crow podcast today because I have my brother from another mother. I should take my hat off. We do look a lot alike, right? Yep, that's good. John Morris is on the program of Club Colors, the famous John Morris. How are you, Pete? How are you doing? I'm doing great, John. How are you doing up in Chicago today? Fantastic. Fantastic. I had the privilege of being on John's show a while back, um, and when I was inspired. He has the best intro and outro of any podcast I've listened to for a while. I, I want to run through a wall when I hear the beginning of your podcast. I appreciate that very much. It's professional grade. I just started following you, I don't know, last year sometime, and I've watched you kind of just build this kind of bigger-than-life presence on the platform. You're posting a lot. You're, you're on point all the time. You bring a lot of energy. But there's a lot more behind the scenes than I think people realize, right? You have the big voice and the personality. There's a lot of depth there. Yeah. And that's what we're going to find out about today. All right. Let's go. So before we hit record, we were both talking about how we met our, our, our wives in college. It was the best thing that happened to us in college at least that we can talk about publicly. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so uh, let's start there. When you were in school, um, I've had a lot of debates with people recently about college in general. And, and if my kids played sports in college, it was kind of a foregone conclusion. But if it was today, I don't think I'd send my kids to college. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I would if they could tell me that they wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer, an engineer or architect. They had something specifically that they could say, I'm going there to become an expert or at least start the process of becoming an expert and qualified and certified to execute this type of a role. Certified is the key word there, right? I want, if, if you're going to be a doctor, a nurse, a lawyer, an accountant, an engineer, and you're doing, building, or touching things that life or death situations can be involved with. I want a certification. I want a really hard exam. I want it to be tough as hell. Absolutely. Or if they told me they want to be a teacher, right? They want to be a professor. Yeah, 100%. But, you know, I made the the mistake of, and maybe I'm still making that mistake at 47 of not knowing what I want to be when I grow up. And I don't know that $35,000 to $40,000 a year uh, to try and find yourself is uh, the smartest thing that you can do. Moreover, you know, when I went to school, I actually was just telling somebody this the other day that uh, had said that they wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And I said, man, yeah, I wanted to be a Marine. That's what I want to be. I mean, I, I grew up right. Desert Storm had happened and there was kind of that big military push and it was all over the news. And oh, yeah. I think we were pretty patriotic at that point in the United States. I think we really trusted government and it seemed really cool. And, you know, I, I, uh, I want to be a Marine, but I came from you know, uh, a fairly affluent suburban lifestyle. And my parents were like, well, you know, no, but, you know, my dad was an executive and all my brothers and sisters went to college. I'm the youngest of six kids. So that was kind of just like, that's the, the American dream, right? You raise a family and they all go to college and get their degree. And it just wasn't for me. I was, I have attention deficit. I'm dyslexic. Uh, and, you know, those aren't excuses, but they certainly don't make for a really great experience in, the way that school is currently set up. And, and by the way, currently set up is different than how it was set up. 
right? It, back, yeah. you know, when I was in high school, there was no, you know, like they've got like now you can stand up, right? If you have attention deficit, they have the heavy blankets if you need it. They've started to understand the psychology of some of these things that it's not really a bad thing. It just needs to be controlled in order to really soak in what is being taught. You know, I went from high school where I went to a private Catholic high school and, you know, the classrooms had 18 to 22 people in them so I could get some extra time and attention. And I could typically charm the teachers into, you know, giving me the answers, right? And then I went to college. I sniffed the the college baseball team for about three weeks. And then I just came to the realization that I just didn't have the passion to to go after it anymore. I had had a really hard battle in high school to get to the starting role, to get to the to the level that I did. And I just discovered that I just when I got there, I was like, man, I just don't have the passion for this. Now, some of that had to do with the fact that I was not mature enough when I went to college to actually really dedicate myself. I like I was just like everything was I walked through the quad and I I go back to my my dorm room after, you know, going to class then going back to the quad, back through the quad, back to the dorm room and my neck hurt. I was just like, "Whoa, they're throwing a frisbee." Well, I mean, something shiny everywhere. Look at that lady. Oh my gosh, that guy's doing that. I mean, I was all over the place. Yep. No focus whatsoever. So I ended up transferring to Illinois State, and when I did, uh, I went from you know twenty five people in the classrooms at a small private university, St. Thomas in, in Minnesota, to Illinois State, where there's two hundred fifty people in an auditorium. Yeah, uh, it just did not work well for me. So I ended up really kind of fizzling out. I just got into a deep depression and just didn't know who I was. And I got caught up in the fun part and wanted nothing to do with the disciplinary part. And when you've got no purpose, you don't know you want to be a doctor. You don't know you want to be an architect. You're just kind of there because someone said you should go there. That's like, as an American from the suburbs, that's what you're supposed to do. And if you ever want a job, you need to go have this piece of paper. You know, I just kind of got lost in, in that shuffle. And then all of a sudden, then the anxiety pours in like, now I'm 20 something, I don't know what I want to be, and I'm not going to get this piece of paper. So I'm pretty much going to be the worst kid in my family. I'm going to be a failure. You know, those things start pouring in. And that's what society's telling you. And sure, you know, older sisters are calling you up like, what are you doing? You're, you're never going to get a good job. Well, I guess I had to dig deep and, and, uh, and challenge that at some point. Well, I mean, if I've had three discussions this week with uh, kids who have dropped out of not only college, but high school and pursued and have built their own companies. That would be the advisement I would give to my kids. My oldest child is probably, he's probably going to be somebody that is going to be focused enough to say, I want to be this and roll with it. And we will, I mean, absolutely 100%, we will say, we're here to support you to do that. And we'll, we'll make that happen. My, my two youngest, it might be a little bit too early to tell, but all indications there is they have an entrepreneurial spirit. I would advise an 18-year-old who doesn't necessarily know what they want to be to go to a community college at the minimum uh, or go get a mentorship, go, join a trade, learn a real skill. You can always learn the business of the business. The other thing that is different, Pete, and I'm not trying to make us sound too old here, but you know. The, you can literally get an education with by going on Google. There is uh, no question about it. I, I think, by the way, 
learning a trade. I don't care if it's plumbing, electrician, carpentry, welding. I really consider those to be life skills. Yeah. When you get married, you have kids, you and your wife might work. Being able to do projects around the house is kind of a lost art. Yeah. It's lost on me. I'll tell you that. I'm in trouble all the time. I'm not afraid to hack it once in a while. I know. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, the only thing I won't do is plumbing. Because if something goes wrong plumbing-wise, it's catastrophic. It costs a lot of money. I want a certified, bonded plumber handling my plumbing work, man. 1,000%. I will tell you, I literally have uh, a chemical reaction when my wife says something like, hey, this weekend I've got a project. And my initial reaction is, how many projects do I need to mess up before (laughs) you realize that I put all my time and emphasis into the things that I'm good at so that I don't have to be the one to do these projects and I can afford to have somebody else who's an expert do those projects. Well, I, I love it. I, by the way, I appreciate you sharing some of that background because you, you bring up a lot of good points. And this is why I teed this episode off because uh, you've built a really good presence on LinkedIn. Uh, when we met, you were kind of, you were kicking this podcast off. You came out of the gate hot. You're with a company who's, you know, whose main purpose is to help people promote their brands. Right? So it, it, it ties in well with what you do. And, you know, what you bring to the table, that didn't happen in college, right? Your personality, your creative energy, you can foster it, you can mold it, you can do some things with it. I mean, college, I'm an engineer, I am an MBA, it just taught me how to think. But, uh, you know, I look back on it and you made a great point about Google. I, I would, this is the conversation I'd have with my kids. If they weren't playing sports and that wasn't an option in college, and they didn't want to be a doctor, a lawyer, a nurse, whatever. This is what I would have said to them. Hey, it would be your freshman year. All your buddies are going to school. You really don't know what you want to do. So let's do this. Let's take the 25 grand we we're going to spend in state tuition. Let's go buy a townhome. You live in one side, fix up the other side. Okay. Yes. Then go online and teach yourself how to code. Take a 100% sales commission job, 100% commission sales job. Get a mentor. Take all sorts of classes and certifications. Learn trade, right? Whatever it is. At the end of next year, We'll buy another townhome with that 25 grand. And now in four years, you've learned either either a trade, a skill, sales. You're sitting on a million dollars of assets as cash flowing, and you've taught yourself a business. Everybody else is going to get a school with $100,000 in debt and no idea what they're going to do with their philosophy degree. That's right. Pete, I got to tell you, that's kind of without, without actually being present in the moment and thinking, I'm going to do that. That's in essence what I did. Minus the take the twenty five thousand and go invest. What I did was I I called up my father one one day in tears and said, you know, I I, I failed. And by the way, I'm not going to be arrogant when I say this, but I was the kind of kid who like my dad put a golf club in my hands and I was I was breaking eighty by thirteen, right? Like, right. You're joining the baseball team. I was on travel the first year. Like things just came easy to me. Sure. If they were down the right lane, school was never that way. So I kind of developed this probably a bad habit of if I can't win, I don't want to play. And there was enough things that were out there that I could win at that I didn't need to occupy myself with things that were going to bring me down, make me feel bad, make me feel like I wasn't a winner. So I really shunned off the idea of schooling. So I called my father. I go, you know, this is like a rarity for me to call up my dad and go, I've failed. Normally it's, hey, dad, I won this, right? Sure. But this time mm-hmm. it was, 
you know, I, I disappointed him. He could have taken a belt out and lashed me across the back. He could have told me how angry he was with me. He could have grounded me forever, all along my never laid a hand on me, never said a mean word, none of that. His meanest words were silence or, and they weren't mean, they were truth. I'm disappointed in you. Disappointment for me, you might as well just shoot me. To disappoint somebody that I madly respect, like Pete, if I disappointed you by just blowing this off, I'd have to block you on LinkedIn. I'd never have to, I could never look at you again. I can't disappoint people. I just can't. It's not in my nature. So he says, uh, so what are you going to do then? Like, we can get you help. I'm like, dad, school is not for me. Like, I just, I I can't wake up every day and go to a place where I know I'm going to fail. I don't want to play. So he says, what are you going to do? I said, well, I want to be an actor. I want to be a stand-up comedian. I mean, there was silence on the phone. Like, you've got to be kidding me. Now, at that age, I was pissed because it was like, what, you don't think I could do it? But now as a father, I would look at a son saying that and go, do you know what the odds are? Of you, I mean, you are going to fail massively before you make it. But, he, you know, he also didn't want to deter me from dreams, right? Sure. So I go and I'm going to be a stand-up comedian and I'm going to do acting. So I start taking classes at Second City in Chicago. Turns out the acting part, the improv part, not very good at it. The stand-up part, got pretty good at it, but was like literally drinking my my $50 paycheck at the bar before I got on stage. So it was literally not making a cent, just losing money. So I started selling door to door. Right. And then next thing I know, I'm in an inside sales, straight commission sales job. And this is my point. My point is, and this is piggybacking off of what you said, you could gig your way to financial freedom until you know what you want to be. There's SDR roles out there that are straight commission or low salary, high commission, whatever it is, where there's appointment setting positions. There's all kinds of positions that you could take where you can learn how to communicate. And learning how to communicate is by far the most important skill. And unfortunately, due to technology, you would think phones would help you help us to communicate, but it's actually deterred us in communicating in a human way and transferring energy and influence. But if you learn that, if you learn that first, tie that into a skill, like you said, then all of a sudden you now could, you could start your own business and lead people and build a brand and take it to the next level. And that was the plan. Unfortunately, I got really good at it and got promoted and they made me into an executive way too early without knowing what the heck I was doing. And uh, it actually turned out to be really, really good and then really, really bad. So you tap into this part of you that says, man, I've got some skills. I can communicate. I can influence people. And I don't mean that in a bad way, right? I mean, some people look at that as icky, but I should say you can... uh, It's only icky if you're bad at it. If you're bad at it. And by the way, if you're bad at it and you don't know it, that's really worse. That's the worst part. You, You spent 15 years you know, as a sales leader, you do a couple of different stints, then you get to club colors. And we've talked about this. You respect the leaders there a lot. You respect the a lot, they yes. built, what they've done. And that helps, right? You get, you get around other people that think like-minded. I've been up to the facility. I've met the team. It has a great vibe. It has a really good vibe. So you told me a story when we took the tour and I told you I was going to try to get it on this, 
on this yeah, podcast. Yeah. I think it's just, I think it's just kick ass. So you guys are, you're ticking upwards. You make physical products, physical branding products. You help companies at events, rep their brand products, all sorts of things. You guys do it at a higher end level than I've seen a lot of other companies do. But COVID hits. Events no longer happen. Companies are freaking out, particularly companies that make products for events. Mm-hmm. You walked me into the back room and you showed me these things you guys came up with. And it was kind of an Apollo 13 moment, like throw the duct tape, the coat hangers on the table, figure out what we can do. Walk us through what life was like and then how you guys kind of, you created this market and solved the problem people hadn't even thought about. Walk us through. Yeah. So, uh, gosh, 2018, 2019, we're implementing sales systems, controls, and procedures. We're building the foundation for scalable growth. To your point, I just want to make this very clear to people. The presence online would indicate to you that I am the owner of Club Colors. I am not the owner of Club Colors. What I am is a really, really, really good general, right? I take the orders, right? And I love that position. I love uh, Chris and Jeff are the brains of the operation. They're the creative of the operation. They don't like to be on camera. They don't necessarily like to be out front, except in kind of one-on-one situations. And what I love to do is to get direction and carry out vision. So it just worked. It's like, what do you want? And they're like, we don't want this. We really want this. And then they left me alone in between. Just go. So that for me is like, wait a minute. So you're saying that I could go. You just want that, and there's no rules on like the, any. Just go, baby. That was their thing. Now, That's awesome. okay. Now, at the same time, don't get me wrong. What I get out of bounds sometimes. Remember that ADD personality that really I get moving sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes I move so fast I don't think. Yep. So they also are kind of like a police for me. They kind of replaced my father. Uh, God bless him in that manner where it's like. Keep winning, keep winning. Oh, let's think for a second, right? And they bring me, they, and then they're like, wind me up again and let me go. So we're rolling. All of a sudden, now uh, we make this move. We're going to hire 18 salespeople in 18 months. We build out the space on the other side of the building. We are on fire. We align with another brand that we've brought in. We were competing with. They were going to shut the business down. They say, hey, we're going to shut it down. We've got these 18 people that are great. Can you take them on? Under the Club Colors brand, we bring them in. Their clients come with. I mean, we're going. So now we're up January and February. We're up 40% over the year prior, which was a record year. COVID hits March 13th. All of a sudden now we've got 18 new people in the building that have been here for six months. We now have to send home. We've got to send home all of our staff that, by the way, our culture is an in-house culture. I don't know that... It doesn't work remotely. It just doesn't work as well. We need the energy. We collaborate constantly. There's a lot of brainstorming and creative juices going on in this building to figure out how to maximize brands. So we now have to send everybody home. All of a sudden now, corporations start sending us emails. We're cutting off our marketing budget. We've stopped marketing. No spend, no events. Everybody goes home. And then our other half of our business is universities. They send the students home. So now there's no events and the faucet turned off. I mean, I know it was bad for a lot of industries, maybe worse for some, but for us, it was literally 
like we were had a fire hose going and now we're on a slow drip like the one that keeps you up at night because it's dripping and it just but it's dripping like every 20 minutes and it hits like bad so our ceo did a lot of research to determine that clearly a channel that we needed to get into was ppe and we need to figure out how we're going to do that so he starts putting together the work to create a channel to source n95 masks now What's amazing about N95 masks is they're all made overseas, okay? Here's the amazing thing about overseas manufacturers. They went from manufacturing bottles and circuit boards to within two days, they all can make N95 masks. Isn't that amazing? Like, how do you get the certifications and the licensing and adhere to all the rules in, like, days? Impossible, right? So... You could source the product if you could find the channel, but there was a fear that it wasn't real. Now you're putting people's lives on right. So as I mentioned, half of our business is universities. What do universities have a lot of on campus? Hospitals. So we line up with a prominent hospital that needs $3.2 million worth of N95 masks. Now, when you lose 80% of your revenue stream, just stops. Yeah, and all of a sudden, a, uh, a hospital says we've got an order for three point two million. I mean, you're popping champagne. You're like, we don't have to fire people. Holy cow, we can save everybody. We can save every single employee. Our CEO was trying to get those certifications, and he calls up the the leadership team. He goes, "We can't take it." And as he's saying that, like a one point six million dollar PO comes to a half down comes to our email, right? Half of the 3.2 million. And he's like, I need another day to figure out if these are real. I just don't know if they're real. So make a long story short, he ends up going, there's a 4% chance that these are not real. I'm walking. We're walking away from the order. You want to talk about integrity in a moment of crisis when you are, when you've got almost 80 employees at the time looking at you like, do I come back tomorrow? Do I have a role tomorrow? And it's, fluff and cheat a little bit or have the integrity to stand up and face all of those people and say, can't do it. So he fires off an email to the procurement officer at that hospital and says, I'm very sorry, very apologetic. Now, meanwhile, the procurement officer is like, oh my gosh, now he's in a panic because he's got people going, we need masks for doctors, for patients, nurses. Everyone's in a panic. He fires an email back that is, I mean, just like daggers. So our we have co-CEOs. Our CEO's partner gets that email. It devastates one of our CEOs. Um, he's already devastated. The other CEO fires off an email. And it was a fully, uh, I embrace this, but you don't know the character of the man. And he literally writes right. an email that is two pages long talking about the character of the person this guy's throwing daggers at. That hospital ended up running into an issue because they purchased counterfeit masks from another supplier who's now running from the FBI. Okay. Sure. In that time frame, the marketing department, and the sales department came up with 10 marketing strategies in five days. And we started launching those out to the marketplace through drip campaigns, social media posts, all types of stuff. And in that was what we called the grad pack. What we discovered, this was March. We work with universities. What's happening in May? Graduations. What we started to learn was that they were not going to be able to walk. 
Remember the whole two weeks, this will blow over? Well, the two weeks went by, it didn't blow over. Oh, yeah. And now it's April something, and the leadership at universities is in a panic. How are we going to graduate 6,000 students on Zoom? How are we going to do that? By the way, those students and their families spent 40000 50000 a year for four years, yeah. maybe six if they got a advanced degree. Yeah. Now, you're talking about $250,000 expenditure investment. and the brand impression I'm going to leave on you after four or six years is a Zoom graduation. I don't care who you get on as a guest speaker. Like, that's a tough situation. Grandma, mom, and dad can't come in and watch you walk. So we started talking to a university out in Boston, a pretty prominent one. And the chief procurement officer there was like, I'm a year away from retirement. This is devastating to me. I have this amazing track record. And we need to make sure that these students get the maximum brand impression from their investment. But moreover, we need to protect next year's admissions. We need to make sure that we don't get destroyed on social media. How do you control social media? Like they had a control of that. So we came up with the uh, virtual graduation commencement kit. What we would do is essentially design a custom box, slow release like an Apple Uh, phone, right? Uh, But we wanted to make it a legacy piece. It needed to be a box that nobody wanted to throw away. They wanted to put in their trophy case. It needed to be memorable. So we started putting, you know, a whole bunch of pictures in the box, lining the box on the inside with memories and moments from their four years there. Uh, The main inside back part of the box would have their seal on it or something that on campus would remind them of that experience. And then we sourced anywhere from three to five promotional products that would emulate their brand and create the most brand impressions. And then we had to get all the programs, the diplomas, the caps, the tassels. They all had to fit into the box. Now, here was the interesting thing. We're having to go to seven, eight different suppliers, plus work with the university to send pallets of programs, pallets of caps and tassels. So we're having to coordinate all of that. And then we go, how do we kit it? So we literally took half of the sales force off of the floor. We would have them come in with their mask on and all this stuff, like double masked up, rubber gloves. And we went in our warehouse and we kitted the boxes, the warehouse team, the sales team, the CEOs, it didn't matter what your title was, we were kidding to get this out. As that happened, another school, prominent school in Chicago, calls us and says, we are have a crisis here, as you know, uh, but we have a graduation coming. We don't know how we're going to do it. And I took my laptop back with Zoom on and I said, do you mean like this? And she started crying. She's like, you've got to be kidding me. You can do that. So she starts rifling off how she wants her box and kit to look. Yeah. And both of those projects were uh, 6,000 boxes, 6,000 kits uh, to nine different countries direct to doorstep. That was the other thing. We had to figure out international shipping in, the, in a crisis. By the way, did you know that you can't send a tumbler to China from the United States? Because it encourages drinking, apparently. So we had a source product that could go anywhere internationally and still meet the brand. You can't send a wood frame to Mexico. Did you know that from the United States? You cannot send a wood frame to Mexico. We learn these things through doing our due diligence 
And that helped us to source product. And depending upon what countries it was going to, we knew what products to source. So next thing you know, we have a kidding department. Now we start, we change the whole sales pitch. We write the curriculum and we go after, uh, we go out to our sales team. We go, this is what we're going to pitch now because people are now buying 2000 hours worth of pens because they have an event, right? Now it's big stuff. Now our sales team had never sold, you know, uh, a consistent flow of projects that were five or six figures. We ended up uh, doing, I want to say, in the range of 60 to 70 virtual graduation kits that year. And it hasn't stopped now. Now universities are having you walk again, but underneath your chair is a kit. That's amazing. It just absolutely changed. It saved the company. Um, Four months into that, we went out and hired 10 salespeople. And we've been hiring ever since. So it saved the company. When you took me on the tour, like you visually grabbed a laptop and said, Pete, this is what I did. You kind of walked back to the warehouse and showed me. And then you showed me all the, you got a table in the back that has all the samples of all the kits you got. Yep. I love stories about people who are in the trenches and everybody innovates. And the way you teed that story up with the the ethical, moral decision that had to be made on the masks, right? That would have been the simple slam dunk, we're done. Mm Mm-hmm. But you established such credibility with that university hospital system because you didn't do that and they got burned. The fact that you only saved jobs, you created jobs. And that university hospital system, by the way, year later, the university, their marketing people and their decision makers, they actually sent a note to us saying that was one of the most integrity driven things that we've seen. And we are grateful for the partnership and the partnership has grown significantly from that. But I got to tell you, for me, you know, I came from a place where I had a a very successful career at a bad place, at a place where leadership didn't care about the brand, lacked integrity. All of their incentives were financially based, right? You're not happy here. We'll pay you more, but now we own you more, right? There wasn't a whole lot of, of recognition. There was no protecting the brand. There was no online presence. It was just straight up hustle. And there was definitely no integrity. To come to a completely opposite situation and have uh, leadership be like, wow, that money is dangling there. We could save a lot of people. I don't have to have the tough conversations now. I don't have to go back to the drawing board. I could just have a solution right here and become the hero and walk from that, I mean, at that point, it's like, well, I'm, I'm a lifer. Here I am. So it doesn't make it very difficult for me to get online and, and promote the brand when I remember that. I think especially in today's job market, I talk to thousands of people you know, a year who are trying to enter a job market, don't have a job, looking for a job. People are trying to hire people. There's a, there's a couple really good nuggets here that young people ought to pay attention to. So if you have the opportunity to work at a small company where you can walk in and every day you make it, you can see the impact of your work. Take it. Take yes. it. Uh, even if it's a lateral move or a parallel move. And, and everybody is concerned about their career path, their career trajectory. There's some merit to that. You go to a large company and they have pay grades and they have, you're in this role for 17.6 months. Mm-hmm. You're in this pay grade. You can't apply for this role because that's 2.6 pay grades above you. And you have to wait till you earn that, right? So some people like that. They don't want to think about it. They just do their work every three years. They get a promotion or a pay raise. They're good. That would be a kiss of death for me. I couldn't do that. But if you work for a small company, your title doesn't matter. The work matters. 
you need to find leaders that gave you that early freedom, John, when they said, hey, John, here, there's the hill we want to take. Don't care how you take it. Well, we'll keep an eye on you. Yeah, exactly. We got you. We got your flank, man. But if you start to go off path, we'll, we'll pull you back in. But we love the energy. Go tackle it and give you some freedom. That, by the way, that environment created the opportunity for your team to sit down and come up with 10 ideas that could change the game. That created that freedom to think out of the box. There's no bad ideas. Right. Right. And then to come out of the other side, believing in your leaders ethically and morally, they, you know, they walk the talk. It's, I think working in a small company has so many benefits and you can stay there for the next 20 years. And as this company grows, now you're in a position to take on more responsibility. You get paid more, but you've paid your dues, right? You've been there five years. Yeah. You've seen some things. You've gone through a downturn. You've gone through a COVID. And when people look back, they're going to go, I, I, was at, I was there when it was the worst. And we've come out of it. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, Pete, is uh, the two sales division managers, Jason and Adam, it's their only role out of college. One's been here for 14 years. One's been here for 11. And they came directly out of college right to Club Colors. And they've both had five or six different roles. Within sales, mainly, except for Jason. Jason's done like, he's like done every role in the company, I think. They have seen the very worst of it. When the company was hemorrhaging millions of dollars a year because of the previous ownership, and now the new ownership had to completely redefine the behavior, do it with limited cash flow, completely realign and create new strategic partnerships. And they have lived through that. And then you get to the moment where you think that you're really, really about to make it big and COVID hits. And the fact that they didn't unravel, the fact that they were like, no, man, let's go. Let's plant in. You know, at the time I was their leader, I was looking at them going, whoa, okay, we're all going to plant in here now. Okay, let's go. And what ended up happening is that kind of happened throughout the building. And that's culture. Culture isn't, you know, like, yeah, we got a foosball table in here. You know, people mess around with it at lunchtime. Yeah, we got, you know, we, you know, we got a dartboard. That's culture. You've mentioned in some of your, uh, some of your posts and some of the comments and, and posts that you and I have engaged with that you were kind of a win at all costs leader for a while, right? Yeah. And now you work with these guys who clearly gave an example of that's not the way we operate. So, how has that changed you as a, as a leader and as a, a, a parent and a husband? What, what was that tipping point for you when you thought, man, I got to take my energy and bottle it up in a different direction? How did that work? As you mentioned, I came from an environment where it was like, you don't have to think, just do it and do it a lot and do it fast and don't worry about what you knock over to get it done. So in fact, you know, one of our CEOs, Jeff, has a couple times said to me, he's like, and he means it in a loving way. So when I say this, he go, and, and they also, they also know, and I'm, this is, boy, this is vulnerable. They also know that I have a lot of scar tissue. So there's a, there's an interesting thing of how they have to get me to kind of realize who I was while they're helping me to become who I want to be, not who they want me to be, but they know deep down who I want to be and their scar tissue that is sometimes holds me back from getting there. So one time he goes, man, you are a grunt. And I go, what do you mean by that? And he goes, I mean this in a loving way, but if I literally said to you, walk downstairs and fire everybody, you would just go do it. And he's like, John, that's, you have to think. Like you have to think 
you can't just go carry out the mission for me. Like you can say, hey, maybe we should try it this way. And then we together. But I, I came in from a place where it was like, you do this this way. And you went, yes, sir. And you just went and did it. And you never thought. And then that came back to bite big time. So what's been beautiful about this is they're like, we want this outcome. How do you think we should get that? And then if I'm going down the wrong path, they go, well, let's think about it this way. And they bring you back. But then they make it your idea. So it's an interesting thing. So what has happened for me at Club Colors? You know, I came in here five years ago with with a pretty good track record of building sales teams, managing sales teams, and closing deals and all this and that. Had no idea that I would understand branding. Had no idea that I would transition to marketing and to content creation. No idea I would get on a podcast, do live stream. I had no idea these things would happen. But what has been most fulfilling is the fact that they have said, go fast, but let's think first. Let's think with purpose. How do we do it in a way where it's the client's idea? How do we do it in a way where we get adoption over compliance? See, I came from a place where it was all about you comply. And whoever complied the best with the best results was cherished. This is a place of how do you influence and persuade and create culture and purpose and principles where everyone buys in and wants to adopt. Because that's what we're trying to do for our clients. It's a masterclass because you see people on this platform or you know LinkedIn or in podcasts talk about environments of where you can feel safe, challenging authority, or asking, is there a better way? But the very thing that they did for you and they're doing for you is to say, hey, John, here's what we'd like to do. How would you suggest we do that? Yes. Right? They didn't say, John, here's what we're going to do and here's what I want you to go do to implement. They said, John, how would you go do that? And you've proven that you can get to the table with creative ideas and help. So that helps, right? I mean, you've, you've proven that you're somebody they can go to. And that takes time. It takes trust. But it's clear in the way that you treated everybody when I was there with you, the way you treated the people when you walked to the room. I, by the way, I was noticing some of the details, right? Everyone's desk was their own personal brain. I could almost tell everything I needed to know about every single person that worked there by looking at their workstation. It was like free rank, be you, Right. And everyone was working hard, but every single person there turned around and said, hey, Pete, nice to meet you. Every one of them. What do you do? And what, you know, they were curious. And when you can get in an environment like that, and I, I talked to a lot of leaders, a lot of companies, there's some people in it, they're not doing it because guess what? It takes vulnerability. It takes time and it takes effort to be that thoughtful about your team and, and building a culture. It's easier just to say, go freaking do it this way a thousand times. It's just easier. Being creative is not easy. It's hard. Yes. You know what the cool thing is about creativity here is there's a lot of places where there's a creative lead and the creative lead is like, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. I need you to do this. I need you to do this. I need you to do this. And then when they get up in front of somebody or it's brought up, well, yeah, I did that. That's my thing. I can assure you that there is not one thing that you have seen from Club Colors, read about on my posts, uh, seen about the podcast, that is John Morris. Right. It's all Club Colors. There is the creativity, the idea of, of creativity uh, through collaboration is really what we're looking for and is what we're encouraging. And, and the reason we have to do that is because when we talk to leads at, at brands that are heading up marketing, they have a vision of what it is that they want to achieve. And in many cases, 
because they have to tackle so much to get to that outcome, they might not have the best way of doing it. Now, we have the luxury of talking to thousands and thousands and thousands of marketing leads and going, hey, look, they did it this way. Let's bring this idea into the equation and really add to that. So sure. the cool thing is what we're doing externally is happen- happening internally. And that's really fun. You know, the last thing I'll leave our audience with is uh, this: your podcast itself, right? And you've touched on this earlier. I know companies that would be pissed that you have this kind of brand out there yourself. They'd be pissed. Yeah, They're the CEO. They're the company. They're the ego. And there's this John guy that's got all these followers and his podcast and his energy. And people think he runs the company. He doesn't. I run the company. They embrace it, right? Your podcast studio is next level. They did that. It's this every of the equipment I'm talking on. I will, I came in one day and it was like Christmas. They're like, here you go. Yeah, it's incredible. But by the way, that's vision. It's lack of ego and it's trust because they know the rising tide floats all boats. And if you can promote your brand the way you do with the energy, it's good for club colors. It's good for your customers because your customers feel like these guys get it. I don't want to put my money in a branding organization that doesn't have a brand. Yeah. I got to tell you, Pete, I went to Chris Tossi, um, who uh, we have co-CEOs. One is they both they overlap, but one is sales, marketing, communications, right? The other is more financial operations, production, right? And then together they they kind of cross, but they they know their lane. So Chris is probably the one I report to the most. And I went to Chris about gosh, I want to say November of last year, and I said, Chris, we need to change the name of In the Club. He goes, Why? I said. Well, first off, I don't think it pushes Club Colors name enough. Secondly, I don't think it tells people what it is that we do. So I, I went to this podcast movement thing and I was listening to these expert podcasters and they were talking about the name of your podcast should really say what it is you talk about and what it is that you do and what your brand mission is. And it should help to generate leads and sales. And, and so I'm going through this whole rant of all these things I learned. And he's like, John, we're not changing the name. He goes, you built a brand. People know it's Club Colors. And by the way, you mentioned it. There's an ad in there. He goes, you worked hard to build that brand. You will continue with that brand. Push that brand. I thought I was doing the selfless thing. Like, I learned all this stuff. This is better for the organization. You want to talk about trust. Like, hey, look, this is an awesome podcast. And it's, you know, John Morris this, John Morris this, the guest, the guest, the guest, John Morris this. All the clips have my face in it. And he's like, no, push the brand. That's pretty cool. He's not wrong. In the Club, I think, is one of the most brilliant podcast names I've seen in a long time, which is, it hooked me. I mean, I was hooked. I'm like, this is awesome. Yeah. Well, John, you're off to opening day for the Cubs against my Brewers tomorrow. Yes, it's going to be a bad one, I have a feeling. <laughs> I hope the weather is good for you. Um, I'm so glad we had you on the show. We'll do another one of these for sure. Keep being you, man. It's the brand. Love it. I appreciate it, Pete. Thanks. This is Eating Crow with Pete Durand.